Welcome to the Q Podcast Show, where we discuss ideas, innovations, and thought leadership in frontier areas such as AI, machine learning, and finance. As AI and ML penetrates the financial industry, there are growing concerns about ethical use of AI and finance. In this talk, Dan will focus on how the AI can be operationalized to help industry professionals and executive teams alike think about opportunities, risks, as well as required actions factoring in ethics in our data-driven world. In today's session, we are joined by Dan Lee Bao from Lightbulb Capital in a talk on the ethical use of AI in financial markets. Now, on to Sri Krishnamurthy, the host of the show. Thank you very much for hosting me. It's a, it's a real pleasure, even though it's a little bit Late at night, I had to turn on sorts of artificial lights to make sure that you guys can see me. But um, it's, it's a real pleasure to be able to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is the ethical use of AI in financial markets. And um, I know that we don't have a whole lot of time because I speak uh, could speak to you about this for, for very long. But basically what we're going to do today is talk briefly about AI and ML in markets, like a little history lesson, okay? That's, that's how I like to start out. And then really dive into who needs to control who, you know? Is it, is it the machine, the man, the man, the machine? Uh, some views on what governments are doing in this space. But then also uh, the main portion of the presentation is really about some of the principles and how to operationalize them in financial markets. We'll talk about things like fairness, privacy, transparency, um, explainability, also accountability. And then we can wrap up and um, perhaps spend a little bit of time on Q&A if you guys want to. So at any point in time, uh, throw me questions, but um, we'll have an extra section at the end uh, for you to ask questions. Okay, so let's get started. Um, I think we can skip over this. The one thing I would say is the the book chapter that we just mentioned, I wrote together with my co-author, Tiffany Wong. She's she's actually now moved. I should update this slide. She's now with Revolut, um, working on how to, how to use AI in the context of um, KYC and, and fraud risk and so on. Um, just to make sure we're all on the same uh, page, I like to start with the definition of what machine learning is. And this is very important uh, because sometimes people misunderstand a little bit. So what is machine learning is really all about systems having an ability to automatically learn and improve from experience without being explicitly programmed. Right? And if you think about that in the context of financial markets, that means that it's not algorithmic trading because algorithmic trading has been there for a very long time. I remember in my early career days in 1999, there's probably already algorithmic trading, but it's rule-based, right? It's, it's more like an expert system. Similarly, high-frequency trading has been around for, for a long while. And while some high-frequency trading shops might also use machine learning, the, the pure definition of high-frequency trading is all about connectivity and speed, and that could still be static, right? So it's it's nothing about um, the ability to, to learn from the data that an algorithm sees, just to kind of make sure we're all on the same page. Okay, uh, skip over that. Now, this is this is a very interesting slide. I don't know whether you've, you've seen it, but um, basically talks about the amount of data in the world. And then it also talks about uh, unstructured and structured data, right? And um, if you look at this little graph, I think it's, it's 
two interesting observations. So about five years ago, for the first time, there was more structured data. Think of structured data as something that a computer can process. More structured data than unstructured data in the world. And um, then from there on, right, it just exploded exponentially. And then as you can see, the blue line kind of deteriorates towards 2020. I'm not sure, this slide is a little bit older. I'm not sure how that actually developed, but you can, you know, you look at the world, you could clearly see that computers can process massive amounts of data. So that makes you think a little bit, right? If there are two fund managers and they're both, you know, equally good, uh, what I mean by that is they have excellent client base all over the world. Um, they have excellent research. Um, you know, they have good portfolio managers. Everything's the same. But one company can leverage machine learning and the other one can't, right? One can derive insights from data, the other one can't. Which one is going to succeed, right? It's clearly the one that can make sense of all of this additional data that is out there right now. So that's just one thing that I wanted to kind of kick off this session with. Now, talk about five milestones um, for the use of AI in financial markets. And um, we'll start with this gentleman. I don't know whether you've seen him, probably if you're in the space, yes. And then you've also read uh, the book by, by Greg, wonderful book, by the way. As early as 1982, there were people applying machine learning techniques to uh, derive insights from, from markets, right? And um, this is fascinating because in 1982, we didn't have cloud computing. We didn't have powerful computers like we have today. Um, but yet people were starting to explore how to use some of these machine learning concepts that we also find today uh, you know, in, in basic Python libraries. Um, they tried to, to use them back then and um, very, very successfully. So yeah, uh, I don't know. I haven't looked up uh, Jim Simmons' net worth really, but I think it's quite massive. What happened next? Well, next thing that happened is really the advent of alternative data, right? So the most prominent example I'm sure you know is all about um, understanding the sales of Walmart by people looking at the, the satellite image of the, the car park in front of the Walmart, right? Um, but there are lots and lots more data sets and companies that specialize in using alternative data to interact with the markets. One very interesting company that I is actually based here in Singapore called Bluefire AI that um, basically scrapes information from Chinese blogs, because as we all know, lots of information in Chinese equities is not integrated in the price. Yeah, it's a, it's a very retail based market. Um, so they scrape all this information and then basically they create a risk matrix on the back of that alternative data to help people uh, in the, the fund management industry to understand risks that are associated to uh, different companies. Yeah? So, so alternative data and just new data on top of uh, the, the traditional data, which basically in the past, right, consisted of fundamental data, um, financial reports and so on, and then also price data. Right? Uh, the, the now, the, the third thing that happened is really actually a person. 
uh, Marcos Lopez de Prado happened, right? A, a, a thought leader in the world of machine learning and in finance. He's uh, contributed a lot in terms of creating uh, guidance on how to use machine learning in financial markets properly, because um, there are many, many mistakes that we can uh, we can make. You know, think about uh, overfitting problems, for example. Uh, he, he's developed a whole bunch of things, including the deflated or probabilistic sharp ratio to uh, measure performance when people backtest and and you know address this multiple testing problem. Um, so, so that was in itself something that really um, pushed, I think, machine learning and finance forward quite a bit. Now, number four, a paper. You don't have to read the whole paper, but um, if you're interested in the topic and you don't know the paper, maybe it's a, it's a good idea, actually. Why is this paper so important? Uh, it's called Empirical Asset Pricing via Machine Learning. This paper is very important because the key finding behind it is that it empirically shows that fund managers that use machine learning can understand expected returns better than the ones who don't. So, so that begs the question, what are fund managers doing that don't use machine learning, right? So that's, um, that, that's a really meaningful insight that we should all um, think about for a moment, yeah? Okay, number five and the last one, I believe. I think it's amazing. FTP Institute showed up, right? Kaya Institute launched a certification um, that basically helps people study and understand how to apply some of these machine learning and, and data science techniques. Um, and uh, very similar to the CFA program where you basically study on your own. You don't get the luxury of quant university where, where people present information to you. Um, and then you can, you can basically learn about these topics and also learn how to use Python, for example. So I think that's uh, a, an important step alongside, uh, for example, quant university to uh, make sure that the broader group of financial services professionals can learn about machine learning and how to use it. All right, that's my, my quick introduction, uh, you know, last 30 years in summary in terms of machine learning and finance. Now let's talk a little bit about ethics, right? Which is kind of the main topic of today's session. And um, some people argue, you know, isn't, isn't ethics in financial markets a bit of an oxymoron, AI or no AI? And, um, you know, maybe this, this issue around ethics is as old as the, the financial markets themselves. I don't know whether any of you had the opportunity to watch the movie that I'm, that I'm showing here, The Hummingbird Project, but it's actually quite a good movie, especially if you're in the industry. It talks about two brothers that leave a hedge fund to build a connection between a rural exchange in the US and I think uh, the New York Stock Exchange. And um, the idea is just to, to conduct basically um, arbitrage between those two exchanges uh, by being faster, right? faster than everyone else by using this line. And um, the movie is called Hummingbird Project. Why? Because it takes a hummingbird one microsecond to flap. And the, that line gives this team the advantage of one second, right? Being one, uh, one microsecond faster. 
So, you know, begs the question, is that is that fair? Right? Is it fair to be faster than everyone else? Is it unfair? Something to think about. Now, um, as Sri mentioned earlier, um, I'm quoting most of the content in this presentation from a book chapter that we wrote about um, AI and business ethics in, in markets. And I wanna start this conversation with a quote, a quote from a, from a financial markets professional that now is a partner in a macro head front and that in the past used to run the global markets business in HSBC. Um, that's where we met, he was my boss. And uh, when I asked him about AI and ethics and markets, you know, this is his statement. Humans have found it impossible to encode ethical standards in finance. So we generally get principle-based guidance like do the right thing. It will take AI a long time to learn the difference between right and wrong on matters where human experts often disagree. So in summary, what is he saying here? He's saying, we can't even figure out ethics ourselves. How a machine's gonna ever be able to do it? No way. So that's an interesting perspective, right? Then quote number two. Quote number two comes from Marcos. We already spoke about him. He says, financial transactions are fraught with agency problems. One solution is to replace human judgment with smart systematic processes. Another solution is to deploy algorithms that monitor human decisions in search for biases. In both cases, AI has an important role to play. Now, how interesting is that? Both of these gentlemen are very experienced financial markets professionals. And um, one says, no way, you know, machines are not gonna be able to be ethical anytime soon. And, and what Marcos is saying is like, we already have so many problems, so many ethical issues in the markets. As a matter of fact, if we don't start using machine learning, we're screwed, right? We, can't, we will not be able to solve these agency issues that exist today without uh, the use of machine learning. So when we got these two quotes, uh, Tiffany and I, we thought that's awesome, right? Because when, when experts disagree, then there's a book chapter to be written. So that's what we tried to do. Now let's talk a little bit about you know, how governments look at these topics. Does it even matter, right? AI ethics at, at first sounds like a very esoteric kind of a topic, but actually it's not, um, it's a real problem. And that's why you can see that around the world, there are uh, regulators that are trying to figure out how to give guidance to the industry, right? Whether it's um, in Hong Kong, there's a framework, we have one in Europe. Um, I'm quoting two documents here that the Singapore government has put out so it's, a, it's really a global conversation that's happening around AI ethics at the moment. Um, something that all of these, these documents share is that they are principle-based. What's the issue with principles? I believe the issue with principles is that they're sometimes not so tangible, right? If, um, if I would say, you know, fairness is a principle, make sure that you treat people fair. 
everyone thinks at first about oh not this not um, disadvantaging anyone when they I don't know sell products or something like that right Amazon uh, recommender systems type of a setting but then what does it actually mean for financial markets right it's a very different setting so that's what got us a little bit interested in looking at this whole topic purely through a financial markets lens believe it or not you know even China some of us believe that uh, in China, you know, data privacy and so on is all is all not up to grabs. But even in China, there's a document called the Beijing AI Principles, which basically does the same thing as every other regulator in the world. Basically, tries to make sure that there is some sort of framework to use AI in an ethical fashion. Okay, so what we're going to do now. Um, is zoom in a little bit on financial markets. And as I mentioned before, there are these five principles that I want to discuss. And what I want to focus on is basically try to operationalize some of these principles, right? And, and make sure that we give tangible examples on what some of these principles actually means on a trading floor, okay? Okay, so... First one, fairness. What's fairness? Uh, just for the record, treating stakeholders impartially and just without taking unfair advantage of them is basically the definition, right? There's nothing new. As we said earlier, it's perhaps as old as financial markets itself, this whole fairness issue. What's the problem with fairness in the context of, um, of machine learning? Well, um, if you're familiar with reinforcement learning algorithms, they basically keep a little account on how well they're doing, right? And they are trying to optimize um, to, you know, increase little points that they get in their, um, in their account. So if they take a good decision, they get a point. That's how you, is the easier way to think about it. If they uh, take a good decision, they get a point. If they make a bad decision, one point gets uh, subtracted. So that's great for financial markets, actually it works really well. But here's the issue. What happens if this reinforcement learning algorithm realizes that the best possible way to get as many points as possible is to basically use you know, unfair practices? Actually, practices that probably if a human conducted them would be fraud, right? Would be securities fraud. Think of things like, uh, spoofing or wash trading or I don't know some sort of pump and dump scheme. So there's there's a real problem there, right? Uh, how do you what do you do with this reinforcement algorithm to make sure it doesn't have to go to jail? We'll talk about whether uh, about whether that's possible or not later. Um, but basically, what we're saying is we have to give these algorithms some sort of boundaries to delineate fair and unfair activity from each other, right? If we don't do that, and um, they're allowed to do whatever to optimize uh, and reach their goal to um, accumulate as many points as possible, then that might be an issue. Um, it's interesting, right? Some people argue, well, algorithms need to be overseen in a lot more strict fashion than humans. But um, I disagree with that actually, because I think it doesn't really help to foster innovation. What I am advocating is actually that whatever regulation we use 
and we apply to human traders, we should also apply to algorithms, right? And then I think we have a we have a good base to start off from. So that's fairness. Let's see what else is there. Privacy. Privacy is a big topic. Um, what's it defined as? Someone's right to keep their personal matters and relationships private or secret. And um, you can clearly see how the centralized nature of today's financial markets pose a bit of an issue here, right? Um, this is actually true, you can believe it or not true, but we wrote this chapter before the Hong Kong Stock Exchange got hacked last year. And um, it's interesting because the Hong Kong Monetary Authority mentioned in a, in a report the previous year that the amount of cyber incidents towards financial institutions in Hong Kong had spiked, right, for some reason. So it's very easy to imagine how these uh, cyber criminals will basically use machine learning to exploit some of the data that they get access to when they conduct their, their uh, cyber attacks, right? So think about some information that is perhaps related to um, ultimate beneficial owners of some member firm on a stock exchange. Um, if that data, uh, you know, that data often is, is data that needs to be disclosed in an orderly fashion. If that gets out um, and somebody hears about it before everyone else, then there's an unfair, um, uh, unfair situation where people can take advantage, right? What's the solution here? The solution actually comes from the cryptography world and um, it's called zero knowledge proofs. And uh, just for those of you who perhaps haven't heard the concept is a very exciting concept that is most easily explained by using this example of somebody going to, um, going to see an adult movie, right? Let's just say I wanna go to the adult movie and um, I go to the counter and then I pay. And then what happens next? Probably the, the cashier is gonna ask me for my ID, right? And then I don't know where's my ID. Where's my ID? I'll show you my ID. Also not very safe, huh? From a privacy perspective. But this is my ID. And what information does it have actually? It's a, it talks about my name, my company, some unique identifier, my sex, my birth date, my nationality whole bunch of data points on this on this ID, right? The cashier will see all of this. Actually, what they do need to see, what is that? What would you say would, would they need to see? My date of birth, right? But I argue actually they don't need to see my date of birth. All they need is a confirmation that I am older than 18 or 21, depending on the jurisdiction, right? So that's where zero knowledge proofs comes in. With zero knowledge proofs, a inquirer can quiz a data set to get a yes, no answer based on some data that is basically start with me as an individual. So if this, in this uh, movie case, right, the, the cashier would ask, is Daniel above 21 years old? Then it would get a yes answer based on my date, which is, you know, in the late seventies. I shall not disclose the exact date. And um, 
that's really interesting, right? Because it does it does make sure that we don't have to store all of this data centrally that can get hacked. Individual companies could store their data and then if somebody wanted to query or wanted to quiz or needed to know about certain data points, they, do, they could ask these yes, no questions and have a probabilistic proof that uh, somebody is above 21, for example. So that's my take on privacy. Let's talk a little bit about transparency next. So transparency, also very, very important um, aspect in financial markets. What is it? Is the quality of making something obvious or easy to understand. Obvious or easy to understand. And in our context, um, machine learning and finance basically refers to whether the public's view of what AI can and cannot do is actually aligned with reality or is, is you know, true. So what's, what's the problem here? The problem is that basically there's not, there's actually a multitude of issues around understanding what machine learning can and cannot do. And um, in the book chapter, we use this, this Hong Kong based fund where an investor had put down $20 million and then lost them, um, you know, and then went back to the fund manager and said, how is that even possible? You know, your salesperson explained to me that you have an AI and then now you're telling me you're losing $20 million. I don't understand. How's that possible? So I think a couple of things went wrong here, right? The first one is the salesperson probably overpitched what this machine learning algorithm could do for investors. So that's no good, right? That's not very transparent. Um, we don't know how that how that case settled or if it already settled, but um, I know that it was at court. And um, what we what we do know though is that there's a bit of an expectation gap, right, between what perhaps people think machine learning can do and what it can actually do. And why is that this gap? Well, number one, because the salesperson probably spoke too positively about. Them, their algorithm, but also because some people that invest in machine learning based algorithms might not fully or might not understand what machine learning can and cannot do to begin with. So, so how can we address this issue? So I think that there need to be two things happening to improve the situation. Number one is we basically need to make sure that there's lots more disclosure, right? Mandatory disclosure on how uh, these machine learning algorithms function and how they react to different types of scenarios and different types of markets uh, movements. And um, the other thing that I think is very interesting is if you think back, I think this started in the probably in the 90s or something, um, exchanges educated retail investors on how derivatives work. I don't know whether you've ever been to one of those workshops, but your local exchange probably has that in store for you, right? If you really wanna know what is a long call and a put and a straddle, you can probably go to your exchange and learn. And um, why is that so? Well, because markets want market participants and market participants are not allowed to trade derivatives unless they, they show some sort of proficiency in that. 
And I think we can use a similar concept in the context of financial markets and just say, look, if you want to invest in something that uses machine learning, then you have to get what the basics are of this new technology so that you can understand the risks better, similar to the, the derivatives example that I just quoted. So I'm really looking forward to that kind of education for investors that um, uh, communicates the basics of machine learning um, so that people can understand the main risks. Mm. What is explainability? Ability to explain the rationale behind an action. Uh, in our case, that will obviously be an investment decision. And um, well, as we say here, objective is enable, to, enable humans to understand appropriately and trust and effectively manage what artificial intelligence partners can do. And um, one, one kind of side note that I wanted to share here is that there's this inverse uh, relationship, right? The more complicated a machine learning algorithm gets, the more difficult it gets uh, when it comes to understanding it or, or being able to explain it. So that's something that we have to keep in the back of our heads if we are in this space. What's the problem with explainability? Well, it's that explain, you know, the systems are actually often quite complicated and therefore very difficult to explain. But what does that actually mean in financial markets? Think about this situation. Perhaps there's an investor that is really not interested in investing in defense, right? And uh, the fund manager has also taken note of that and has a bit of a note and says, yeah, these are, we, we have to impose certain constraints for this particular portfolio, excuse me, for this investor because he's not into the defense sector. But then think about some act of war, you know, some uh, fat tail event, uh, perhaps similar to um, September 11, 2001, where the algorithm really realizes that because of this fat tail event, that is arguably an act of war, uh, shorting airline stocks is a really good idea because that gets us the, the best profit, right? So we don't know how an investor's moral compass actually works, right? But um, this kind of situation may or may not be acceptable to, a, to, an, to that investor, right? Because airline stocks are obviously not you know, defense contractors, but the fact that the algorithm takes profit based on this war kind of situation, you know, we don't know whether that's really in line with what they, what they thought of. So what do we recommend to deal with this? Basically what we're saying is we need to stress test these algorithms on a very regular basis um, to understand their behavioral patterns. And we need to do that, including fat tail events, because we don't have many fat tail events, which makes it very difficult to uh, predict how the algorithm is gonna react in these events where we don't have many observations that they could have learned from. Right? So that is, that is very important. As we said earlier, you know, we shouldn't overdo it. Humans, also make mistakes. And it is not fully explainable what humans do. 
think about all of these rogue traders that sat in, I don't know, UBS and SockGen. There's a, there's a moment in time where lots of people were actually into rogue trading for some reason. And um, these rogue traders are also you know, committing actions that are not fully explainable. So that we have to accept that there's a residual risk that things can go wrong. Right? Often people forget about that. Okay, last one, accountability. Accountability is the ability to hold somebody accountable for uh, their activities. And um, that also includes um, admitting that something went wrong, right? And obviously is very much related to explainability in the case of AI and finance. But um, I really wanna think with you a little bit about what's the, what's the issue here. So accountability is sometimes not clear in this setting because people have interesting ideas about how to sue an algorithm and then they get into this notion of, oh yeah, you know, does the software developer need, need to take a trading exam now? Or, uh, you know, they, they wanna grasp who, who can I take to court, right? And it's actually quite simple because remember this, AI, is basically just a technology that enables the financial services provider, right? And um, therefore the management that uh, puts this technology to use is the one that will, will have to represent the entity and will have to go to court if need be, right? So it's very similar to if, uh, to, to a situation where somebody on the trading floor does something wrong, you know, who is the buy side client? Let, let's just think about this, right? There's a, there's a fund manager and then there's its broker and the broker has a person on its trading floor that does something wrong, you know, books the trade the wrong way around or something. Fund manager loses money. Who are they going to hold accountable? Is it the trader? I don't think it's the trader. I think it's actually the brokerage entity, right? The company that is represented by principles that will will then take the will will have to take this accountability yeah so nai is nothing more or nothing less than a technology that is used by a financial services provider let's not get into this whole conversation about suing an algorithm because it's not like that's not how uh, regulation in, in finance works right okay to conclude Pace of technology is on this, you know, accelerating curve. But I also believe that machine learning cannot really be considered a emerging technology anymore because it's already being used in finance broadly. It's not free of ethical risks. So these need to be managed quite carefully. And therefore it's essential to operationalize these ethical principles that, um, that regulators have put out by thinking about how we can actually really apply them in our context in financial markets. And um, in our little book chapter, we suggest a bunch of these operationalizations. Of course, it's a, it's a conversation starter, right? You can see how we can um, uh, do a lot more work in that space. But um, my, my recommendation stands, we shouldn't refrain from, we should, sorry, refrain from implementing more rigorous controls for AI than we do for humans. So that might be, uh, you know, stifling innovation. 
And um, I like to kind of close the more official part of this, of this talk with a quote by my friend, Henry Young, who has very extreme views sometimes on LinkedIn, but he's nevertheless very smart. He says, I see no distinction between AI and people since the latter are just biological AI. So with that, I really wanna open up for questions and uh, thank you for attention so far. Um, yeah, looking forward to hearing more from you and understanding what you're interested in in, in in particular. I see that there's something on chat which I only have seen right now. Oh, that's not for you then, don't worry. Oh, okay, not for me. Okay, cool, cool, cool. <laughs> cool, thank okay. you for this excellent presentation. Uh, this was uh, very well summarized on the various key themes about uh, ethics and AI. Now, um, I, I would like to kick off questions and for people in the audience, please feel free to like type your questions in the chat window and uh, you know, time permitting, we'll try and answer as many as possible. Um, the first question I would like to have for you, Dan, is now when humans make mistakes, you know, we kind of, you know, don't don't think that every human should be on par in terms of decision making at a particular level. We just basically say, okay, if a doctor makes a mistake, we say, fine. I mean, every doctor is different in terms of interpretation. We don't expect all of them to treat patients at the same level and we basically excuse them. But when machines make mistakes, even a minuscule mistake kind of gets treated and gets onto the press and becomes a whole big deal. Now, how do you balance this notion of fairness when we treat fellow human beings and we kind of think that, well, humans make mistakes, that's acceptable, but when machines make mistakes, you know, it's not acceptable and we kind of, you know, expect a higher bar for machines or the highest bar yeah. for machines. Yeah, very good question, thank you. Um, so, so as I tried to say earlier, right, I, I, I disagree with holding machines to a higher level of, uh, of accountability or, or fairness or, because I think in the end of the day, as we all know, they are, they are working on a probabilistic basis, right? And we need to understand that. And, and then we will know that there will be errors that, that happen, right? And if, if we don't get comfortable with that, then we make wrong economic decisions. I have a dear friend who um, tried to implement machine learning in insurance, right? Mm -hmm. And um, he had a long conversation with, um, with all these actuaries, right? And uh, they basically couldn't accept that the machine learning algorithm that was supposed to calculate um, uh, underwriting type uh, decisions um, had uh, had a had a I don't know what is it, some ridiculously low number like one percent uh, of the cases were were basically assessed in the wrong fashion, right? Mm -hmm. And um, so so even though they could have doubled the revenue, they didn't accept that, right? This is a, like a really large insurance. And um, what's interesting, sorry, a bit of a long story, but you'll see how it's quite relevant. Um, what they did afterwards is they analyzed how often the humans, the actuaries would get it wrong. And it was a really large number. Like, I mean, don't quote me, it was 25%, not 1%. So what does it tell us? It tells us that we need to understand machine learning better because uh, humans inherently fear what they don't understand. And that uh, gets them mm -hmm. to take the wrong decision. They accept 
making mistakes 25% of the time, let's say, as opposed to 1%, because at least they know how these 25% got there, but they don't understand the 1%, so there's less tolerance. And that is, that is very dangerous because you, you, know, you forego huge revenue opportunity in this case um, because you don't know enough. So that's why I think um, you know, institutions like yours can play major part in trying to help and clean that up because as more people understand the, the fundamentals of how machine learning works, uh, people will get more comfortable with it. So that's one thing I wanna say. And then the second thing I want to say, I think in financial markets, it's slightly different uh, than in, in medicine, right? I'm not, I'm, not a, I'm not a medical doctor, so I can't really comment on how much tolerance there is. But if you think about the, basically, the, you know, if you have like a series seven or a series 65 or whatever it's called in the US, right? You're basically held to the same level of, of uh, accountability, right? Because mm -hmm. there's a rule book that says, these are the things you can do. These are the things you cannot do, you know? Pump and, pump and dump, bad, right? You lose your license, you can never practice finance anymore. So yeah. I think it's quite black and white. Yeah, and so that's that's maybe my thoughts on, on this topic. Right, so um, kind of a follow on question, right? So, you know, if you just go by what, I mean, I was having this discussion with someone saying, can we make the mistakes go to 0%, right? The machines should be held to the highest standards and we will not accept a machine to go beyond that. It's, and that was that, I mean, you cannot deploy a system which is 100% accurate for sure. Now, the question is the same, you know, similar fashion when you talk about um, machines making decisions or other humans making decisions. And you know, humans make decisions, if something goes bad, that's why doctors have liability insurance. You know, we don't intend to make mistakes, but if a mistake happens, we are covered, right? So do you have any, thoughts or have you tracked anything happening in the machine learning space wherein there is some kind of an insurance for you know, potential damage caused by algorithms? And if that becomes the norm, what does that mean to ethics in the context of, well, I have protection so I can take more and more riskier decisions. And what does this mean to fiduciary responsibility? Yeah, I mean, we can probably talk about this for a very long time, but um, if we zoom in on the pure sort of use of machine learning in the context of trade execution, right? And, and you know, getting trades done in the markets, then I think, um, you know, there's no need for additional insurance on top of what already exists today. Because um, principles of a brokerage firm will basically be the ones who will have to answer to the regulator or to their clients if something goes wrong. And um, I'm sure that there are, that there are basic uh, insurance schemes that are being used, right? Um, and, and basically all of this comes under operational risk, right? If you think about it. Um, so I think, I think there's no specific insurance required and I would actually caution against it because as you say, you know, that would perhaps create some ill incentives where people go, well, but I'm covered anyway. And then I'll just go ahead and, you know, do more experimental things that I always wanted to try out uh, before, yeah? So I think that is, 
that is perhaps how, how I think about this. Well, so there's actually one. There are actually two okay. questions I wanted to kind of ask. The first question is, uh, I think it relates to some of your other areas of expertise, which is like blockchain. And I think there's a question on, uh, you know, we haven't seen many implementations outside of the cryptocurrency and uh, smart contract space. Um, so is it is it just that because blockchain is conceived as a write-only uh, shared database? I think it's a little bit kind of borderline whether it's an ethics-related issue, but maybe maybe you can share your thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, before I do that, three, if you don't mind, let me uh, let me answer the question on the chat because we've got sure. one question that I just saw on the chat. Um, okay. Uh, let me do that real quick. So if there's a question. There's also a question answer. So I think there are questions coming on both tracks. So. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Cool. Cool. Okay. So this question says, "Can data quality check? Uh, can data quality check an answer for this question?" Oh, okay. Performing um, QC quality assurance. I assume that means checks on the financial model output. Yeah. You see, I think when we talk about how to stress test algorithms to see how they behave under different scenarios then I think that is a very good thing. So I would agree that, you know, this is a, this is a very good, this is a very good question or a very good pointer because uh, the more, the more we understand how the algorithm behaves, the better we can risk manage it, right? Mm -hmm. um, I do think that we have this inherent issue with not having enough fat tail events in the history of finance um, to try these things out, which is why I think I'm going to attend the, the session next week on synthetic data because that's kind of the solution. You know, how do you how do you um, how do you create data that that uh, lets you play with these different scenarios right. that we have? So I think that is a that is a very good point that you're, that you're making there, and and to some extent, I think that would definitely help. Yeah. Cool. So. Um, and this is again a little bit borderline philosophical question. So you know, if you look at like you know human behavior, right? So you have ignorance, mm. and you have negligence, <laughs> and then you have maleficence, right? So you are kind of mm -hmm. you know you have uh, really smart people trying to do really smart things, but then you have people who don't realize that it's a mistake and they're just doing it because that's the extent to which they do things, right? Um, what do you think about you know how when we kind of uh, building in intelligence into algorithms, you know where do we stand because we are kind of giving it how people have behaved in the past, and if we look at real data trained real algorithms, so you have a whole spectrum of these historical use cases, and in ways we are perpetuating bias, we are perpetuating some of these aspects through our behaviors, and we are training algorithms to be more human life, which involves gradations of all these three, right? So, you know, mm -hmm. Halloween happens and I steal candy from my daughter and that's maleficent, <laughs> but I mean, <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah, uh, but again, in the big scheme of things, you know, you have, you know, different parties getting affected. So what do you, yeah. what do you think about like, how should machines, like it should be like this Uber standard wherein this should be like the, you know, like the purest of all, all things, right? Um, but how do we train it to be that way? I think, I mean, this whole bias conversation is a very huge conversation, right? Um, 
and not not so much in maybe also in financial markets, but also in in consumer uh, setting where people think about, you know, is it fair to use this kind of data? And then somebody comes from a rough neighborhood, and that's why they don't get credit and all these these sort of things, right? So I think the answer to managing some of these challenges is perhaps to have more abundant data. Not, mm -hmm. not necessarily more, you know, cleansed data from what we believe is kind of wrong, because sometimes there is a reason for bias, right? And and you know, if you don't have any bias, then you you can also not take good decisions, right? Or decisions that uh, have have turned out to be good in the past. So I think what's more interesting is is to uh, feed algorithms more data points, and I don't mean more observations, but I mean more, more, more features um, to basically uncover um, how things came about in the past, right? And um, perhaps we can do that and then also augment it with what I was saying earlier when we talk about um, uh, fairness, where we, ha we have to... Um, delineate right what is illegal activity and then even if somebody tried you know they they can't do it right so today if you you know if you sit in a bank and you try to do some sort of spoofing or something then there there is a, a compliance system that will you know hit you on the finger and say you can't do that so I, th I think we need to treat them almost human like um to kind of avoid these issues that could lead to uh, unfair behavior, right? Um, the the difference is, and I, I'm sure you would agree that right now we cannot appeal to conscience, right? Because they because the, the concept of conscience is not quite there yet in machine learning space. So in the absence of conscience, where where you can where you can say, you know, like like Matt was saying, do the right thing, right? That doesn't cut it for for machine learning. I mean, that doesn't cut it. So I think it needs to be um, delineated in a different fashion. What's very encouraging actually, uh, just to compliment, is this whole movement of XAI, explainable AI, mm -hmm. and how people actually work around, um, you know, making things more transparent and more, more understandable um, to, to folks. So that's, that's really good. Yeah. So actually there's a follow-on question uh, from John Hill, the world's renowned expert on um, uh, model risk management. One of the major challenges for validating machine learning models is the lack of explainability. Validation teams develop their own benchmark models to help validate champion models, which do not themselves have been validated. Would it be viable and ethical to use ML benchmarks to validation or to validate ML champion models and thus avoid the problem of transference? What do you think? Whew, that's like a derivative of a derivative of a derivative. Um, <laughs> it's a great question for the, first of all, is is a really great question, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, I think, think um, I haven't really thought about this, to be frank. Um, I couldn't see why not in the first place. My question would be if, and now I need to, delineate between the different derivatives. So if we have enough observations and enough data on the 
champion model level, right? Then perhaps machine learning can do a good job. Um, but it's not something that I have explored in detail. So I'm on thin ice here. So that's why I think John has asked a really good question. Um, <laughs> John always oh, wow. has really good questions. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I love it. I love it. And then um, possibility of collusion. Yeah. So, so in my mind, collusion is one of those things that is a is a rogue behavior, just like uh, a pump and dump scheme, right? That a machine learning algorithm could could explore. So that's where perhaps the delineation uh, topic comes in again. But um, wow, you gave me something to think about, John. So thank you for that. Yeah, you'll be all night. You'll be awake all night. I hope not, but uh, uh, so maybe we should end up with like one last question I was like itching to ask. Um, so, you know, there's always this uh, thought about how much of it should be self-policing and how much of it should be regulation, right? So you're kind of going with this whole network spoofing, you know, you have something which says don't do it. But again, you know, we have traffic laws too. And the laws explicitly say you can't go above 60 and people still go. And some of them don't get caught. Some of them do get caught. When they're caught, they are penalized, right? And how do we regulate AI, you know, when we think about defining all the parameters on it which should operate? And when I'm kind of thinking because, you know, when we look at AlphaGo, which beat humans, right? I mean, it's the best algorithm out there in, in terms of Go. But then the comment made by you know, you know was the moose were not human-like, right? And what do you think about like AI? You know, I mean, like we can think about like okay, do not do this, do not do this. But what in case there are moves which are not human-like, and where do you draw the boundary of where it should be? Like, well, this is not ethical. I'm not going to do it. I'll self-police myself versus. Well, this is the smartest thing the algorithm came up with, and it's not my responsibility to take ownership of what an algorithm came up with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that is a very good question. And I think it kind of opens up to the whole topic of, you know, is is being compliant the same thing as being ethical, mm -hmm. right? And And that is, you know, leave AI aside, that is already a very complicated question to answer because, um, you know, some things might be allowed by the regulator and then some people might still think that they are unfair or, you know, they, you know for example, th there are proponents of, uh, you know, there are people who say high-frequency trading is very unethical, mm -hmm. right? Because you're exploiting that a privileged access to information, and then you know that costs other people money that don't have this this advantage, right? So from that angle, you can easily say um, that basically the rules or the regulation are are the only thing that counts, right? And you could say whatever is allowed is allowed, and then that's as far as I go. And what I if I don't break any rule, then I've done it. I've done it well enough, um, or you could take the other stance and say, no, 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 we need to think about these things more fundamentally and then perhaps um, amend our, our regulation as we find out about these non-human-like behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. um, but that is, is a, you know, you could write a book about that alone because there's a, 
these it's, it's quite nascent, right? These these unhuman-like moves haven't been explored uh, in detail to see whether there should be a change in regulation. And then we would have to map that back to some of the principles that we discussed today to see how that how that actually affects uh, other market participants, right? So, so very, very interesting area. Cool. So we'll leave it at that for now, Dan. Uh, this was an absolute pleasure. I wish we could continue the conversation. Um, I hope we have not, you know, intrigued you enough to have you spend all night in Singapore thinking about these important questions. <laughs> I think you should get some more sleep and you can think about these big questions tomorrow morning. Thank you. Uh, we will continue the discussion. And next week, as uh, Dan was mentioning, we're going to have Steven Jansen uh, do a tutorial on how do we generate synthetic data with some of the models out there. And for people who are interested in continuing the discussion, connect with us on Quant University's YouTube channel or LinkedIn channel or any of the other social media channels which our marketing folks are putting together. And also uh, join us at the Winter School. We are offering multiple courses so that you can not only just listen to these conversations, but also get engaged and kind of understand the core underlying algorithms which are driving all these innovative changes which are happening in the world. So let's continue the discussion online. And thanks again for attending. And I wish you all a very wonderful rest of the week. Thank you very much. And thanks again, Dan, and have a good night. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye from Singapore. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for today's session of the Q Podcast Show. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Visit us at quantuniversity.com for upcoming events, courses, and to continue the discussion.